Yeah, I do encourage you to do the cookout, and um, I wanted to just say a little shout-out for the 050s. They've been plotting and planning, so there'll be something next week after the second service, and um, hopefully something that's connected with the young adults, I think, is the plan. But I'm just whetting your appetites because I don't have the full announcement, but I've been encouraged to have you be ready for next Sunday. Once again, thank you, praise team and band, for uh, helping us. Yes, thank you. Mm-mm. Lord, we give you thanks. Our hope is indeed in you. Lord, where else can we go? Thank you for who you are and what you have been doing in the world and in our lives and in our life together. And Lord, we submit these next few moments to you as well. Lord, this whole day has been about you as we come together to worship you, to praise you, to lift you up, to see you as the great God that you are, not to elevate ourselves or any particular philosophy or idea, but to simply celebrate you, Lord Jesus, the work you have done through your spirit as we give honor to God today. Lord, please see fit to continue to minister to us from your holy word. I ask that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would indeed be acceptable in your sight. Your sight, you are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we say thank you. Amen. There's a guy that if I said his name, some of you would recognize it. He's a psychiatrist who's a Christian, has written at least two books that many have found to be helpful. Years ago, I used to meet him regularly for breakfast, or at least once a month. I'd drive over to Arlington, Virginia. Early on those Monday mornings, we typically eat at an IHOP and catch up on things. And I remember at one point, this guy was contemplating whether or not to open his own practice. He was agonizing over it a bit. His father had died when he was young, and he admitted his hesitation was partly because he wished he could get advice and wisdom from his dad. I asked him something like, well, what would your dad say about all of this? And he said, make sure you've done your homework. So I asked him, did you do your homework? He said, yeah. I said, well, you're ready. Go for it. My friend started to cry. Because I think he missed his father, and he also needed some assurance that he was doing the right thing, following the Spirit of the Lord. For a time, we were very friendly. He, he liked my preaching often. He would come up to me after the service and kiss me on the cheek. <laughs> he was comfortable being emotional around me. His practice has gone on to be very successful. And he wrote those two books I mentioned years after work as a Christian psychiatrist. I was his pastor, trying to encourage him as a disciple of Jesus. And he's a disciple of Jesus who happens to be a psychiatrist. Now, I tell you this story for a couple of reasons. One is I want you to know that I've been in pastoral ministry for a long time. And even though my contexts have changed, I've learned a lot about people, including myself, about churches and about ministry in general. But the second reason I tell you this story is to make clear that when I preach about discipleship or about following Jesus, I just don't mean it with respect to what happens in or around this building. I mean, sometimes Christians think that the only way to be serious about Jesus is to become a pastor or a preacher. Everybody likes to preach or be a missionary. Not everyone is called to those vocations, but every believer is called to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and I preach about discipleship, and it's not just about what you do with your volunteer hours serving in the life of the church. I do mean that, but not just that. I also mean being a disciple of Jesus at your school, 
on your block, in your house, on the bus, at your place of work. So I have a few more weeks to preach from this pulpit, and I want to leave you with some of the things that I've learned here in Minneapolis, but also over the years of ministry prior to coming here. And I want to do all I can to encourage and also challenge you. Those are typical pairs that go together, by the way, for, in Christian language. Encourage and challenge. We probably could say it more definitively, like make you feel good and make you feel bad. Because depending on how you view encourage and challenge, it could go that way. We're reluctant to say, I command you. We'll leave that to the Bible. But I want to encourage you and challenge you for whatever God has in store for you next. See, this is why I decided to go through 2 Timothy. You might recall it's Paul's last letter before his execution as he's in a prison in Rome. And these are, in essence, his last words directed to his protege, Timothy, but also to all believers that will follow after. So we're going to continue in our study of 2 Timothy by looking at chapter 2 today, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust the faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him... He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. Now, I grew up in a church that was somewhat Baptistic, so we would always say, may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word, you know. And I know the high church people say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But, you know, even as I'm joking, I, I can almost make a whole sermon over what I hear between the two services. But um, somebody stopped me today who was visiting, well, uh, new, and she said she visited so many churches. She said, I like that you open the Bible and read from it. She said, that doesn't happen in a lot of churches these days. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness, what is happening? <laughs> Paul continues on with Timothy, and he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, we've said this many times, it's God's favor. It's God loving us when we don't deserve to be loved. It's forgiving us no matter what we've done. It is God welcoming us back even though we've run off and, run and lived our hedonistic ways and eaten with the pigs, so to speak. God's grace is about giving gifts through the Holy Spirit so that we can be part of what God's doing in the world. Grace is having food and clothing and shelter and health along with many luxuries of life that so many people on this earth don't have. You've heard it said, God helps those who help themselves, but I say unto you, grace is God helping those who know they cannot help themselves. Grace is God's help. So what does it mean to be strong in the grace 
that's in Christ Jesus. That's part of what my friend, the psychiatrist, was figuring out. Being strong in the grace that's in our Lord Jesus means learning how to rely more and more on the power and the presence of God in our daily lives. These next few verses flesh out a bit of what Paul means by being strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. So let's look and see. The first thing that he, he says is be part of a discipleship chain. That's the way I say it. Be part of a discipleship chain. You see it in verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of others that you would teach to faithful people who can teach others also. Near the end of my seminary experience, we had a person come and speak in the chapel. His name was Bill Hull. He had written a book called Jesus Christ, Disciple Maker. And it kind of got me excited as I was getting ready to graduate and thinking about planting a church. And as I went off to go plant a church, I found he had written two other books, Jesus Christ, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, The Disciple Making Pastor and The Disciple Making Church. So I read all three of them and, and I was all excited. But I came across what he called the principle of selectivity. And I didn't like it at first. I never liked anything that smacked of favoritism, and it sounded that way to me. It sounded like how some people could get picked and others get overlooked. And I think I've always been sensitive to being overlooked. Now, when I was in middle school, I was a good athlete, or junior high, we called it, I was a good athlete. I was a good athlete in high school too, but I'm not here to tell you my athletic exploits. But just the point to say, I wasn't afraid of being overlooked then, but I was sensitive to the people who would get overlooked. I was telling a story about a friend, I mentioned it before, but a guy named Richard. Richard was, um, often got overlooked. He had hearing aids, and people assumed, it seemed like the other guys assumed he didn't have athletic ability because he couldn't speak very clearly because he was deaf. But I would, I would pick Richard for my team because I saw how athletic he was. Now, at the time, I could throw the football really far, so I would, I would work out a plan with Richard that he could see on my hand in the huddle because I knew he couldn't hear me, and they would leave Richard alone. So I'd throw the ball just down the field. Richard catch it. We'd be getting touchdowns. It seemed like they would, would have learned. But it's funny because I thought maybe I just remembered it that way because it sounds pretty cool. But I remember years later, we find each other on Facebook. And I think it was around the time Richard turned 50. And um, we both would have turned 50 that year, but I said Richard turned 50. And, uh, and so... <laughs> And I remember saying, you know, just putting, saying happy birthday to him. And he said, remember those bombs you used to throw me in junior high school? I said, oh, he remembered, he remembered them too. But, but I'm sensitive to people being overlooked. So I would always give my time and energy to anybody who asked. I went out of my way to try to keep people connected to the church. I tried to find small groups for them to attend. I tried to get them connected to some sort of ministry. This is how I was living my life for a long time. And I responded to pretty much every crisis or situation that came my way, I was on the path to burning out. And I realized that even though I would invest a lot of time and energy into some people's lives, they didn't always appreciate my investment. They proved to be unreliable and unfaithful. And it took me a while to realize Bill Hull was right about this principle of selectivity. It's here in verse 2. Leaders must be selective in how they will invest their time and energy. They must be selective in choosing disciples. Jesus prayed and before he picked the 12. They must choose people who are reliable, who will pour themselves into other people by investing time and energy. I say be part of a chain of discipleship because it is sort of like a chain. We are linked to people. We should be linked to people who are more mature than we are in the faith and people who are newer in the faith. We're receiving from some while we're giving out to others. That's why the 05R, I love they're always a 
passionate about trying to connect with the rest of the church. I mean, we folks over 50, maybe we're sensitive about, about church always seems to be for young people. And we, before we get kicked to the curb, we want to say we've got something that we've learned, some experiences that we've gained over the years. We've been walking with Christ for a while. And I would say to younger folks, latch on to that. We sometimes use this language of pouring oneself out. That's what Jesus did. Philippians 2, 7, he emptied himself when he took on a human body, poured himself out on our behalf. So discipleship involves spending time with people on purpose so that we can have someone pour into us their experience with Christ and that we can pour into others what we have learned. This is why we push small groups here. Discipleship happens only to a degree on Sunday morning at a worship service. But most people who have been in the faith for a while know that most of our growth happens beyond the weekend service. We grow when people spend time with us, asking, answering questions, serving together, praying together, generally walking together along the way. Now, Pastor Pete Scazzaro, we've heard his name before because he wrote those books about emotional, healthy spirituality, emotional, healthy leadership. We went through both of those books during the last few years here at the sanctuary. He had a picture on his Facebook page the other day to talk about discipleship. It was this picture here. I like the diagram. It challenges the way we think of church and discipleship, especially since the megachurch phenomenon of the 1980s. We think we first pack people into a building, then we indoctrinate them, then we acculturate them to the way of Christianity in America. Then we beg them to serve. And hopefully we'll get a few people to go out and be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus to make more disciples. A few drops. So that's the funnel on the left. It shows this is, this is how we hope. A large group will somehow engage. And then we typically get a small percentage of people to go out and make an impact on the world. The funnel on the right is upside down. The way of Jesus is an upside down way. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. In the way of Jesus, more trust is put on the Holy Spirit because the numbers start small and God gives the increase. But it isn't just about small numbers at the beginning. It's entrusting your teaching to faithful people who can then teach others also. Notice the markings on the funnel at the right if you can see it. Discipleship starts out with that one drop. That's Jesus. He says it goes to three. That's because he had an inner circle of disciples. Then 12, his 12 disciples, apostles, we call them. Then there were 70. Remember, he sent 70 out to go and heal and cast out demons and to preach. And at one point, the apostle Paul says, you know, when Jesus was raised from the dead, people saw him. He said over 500 sisters and brothers saw him. The number is up to 500. And then in the book of Acts, we see the whole church splashing out into the world to go make disciples throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Where are you in the discipleship chain? Are you a reliable person who's linked to a mentor and also linked to someone newer in the faith? I mean, let me get real and personal. I've said it many times that American Christianity is almost exclusively about numbers. If a male leader can pack the pews, we will sometimes overlook sexist behavior and maybe even overlook womanizing. If a leader can get large numbers, we will often excuse poor money management, excuse racist comments, excuse a bad marriage, excuse neglected children, excuse workaholism, gluttony, and a general lack of emotional health. We will excuse it all if they can get a crowd. I've seen it. 
I came to understand that I needed to leave pastoral ministry probably because I'm disinterested in playing that numbers game. I'm grateful to God, however, for many people who have sought me out, called me a mentor. Many of them not even here at the sanctuary. I came to believe that to be a shepherd, the literal meaning of the word pastor, I needed to pass on whatever I've learned to reliable people who could teach others also. Be a disciple. Make a disciple so the church can impact the world. Now, Paul goes on to elaborate on what it means to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. After he's saying, in essence, be part of this discipleship chain, he offers some metaphors for what discipleship looks like. And the first metaphor he gives is one of a soldier. He says, in essence, be like a soldier. You see it there in verses three to four. Paul will often call followers of Christ soldiers, but he does not mean it in the literal way of fighting as the world fights. We're soldiers in the army of the Lord. I'm a soldier in the army. Some of y'all know that. That's an old-timey one. So I always pick on my brother Jimmy because on Wednesday nights we have a lot of fun at Bible study, and he will often bring up his time as a Marine because, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. Simplify. He got his hat still. But any of you who served in the military can appreciate the life of a soldier. It takes discipline. It takes obedience, the ability to follow orders. It requires training so that virtually nothing catches you by surprise. It takes education, learning what the enemy is like. Paul speaks from his ancient context and says that being a soldier involves suffering. There's that word again. He also says it involves a level of detachment from everyday affairs. In other words... There's a focus that soldiers need to have. When soldiers are deployed, they are away from home. They're not involved in day-to-day household matters. Paul gets at obedience and discipline when he says the soldier strives to please the commanding officer. So when it comes to the Christian life, we also need discipline, the ability to lay aside those things that would hinder our faith. That's not about legalism. It's not about things that will determine whether you're Christian or not. It's about focus. It's, it's not a sin, for example, to go out and eat or spend money on entertainment. However, if you're broke and deep in debt, discipline says you cut back on expenses. What might keep you from being a disciplined Christian? Could it be a bad relationship, maybe? Maybe you're in one that got sexualized too quickly and you're in too deep. You can't focus. Do you have problems managing your time, your money, or your appetite? Those things could keep you from being a focused disciple. Do you know what scripture says? If you don't, that could keep you from pleasing your commanding officer, as Paul would say. Be a disciplined soldier. The second metaphor Paul uses is that of an athlete. A lot of us played sports. He says, be an athlete. And we probably all have our own stories of successes and failures in playing sports. In the ancient games... Athletes would compete and receive a crown, uh, uh, a a laurel wreath, W-R-E-A-T-H. It's interesting. The word for crown, Stephanos, is the word that we get the name Stephen from that. That's used throughout scripture to refer to crown. The the other word is diadem, but it's only used a couple of times in Revelation, interestingly. It's, uh, It's used of the beast, who has the crown, and also of Jesus, who has a diadem. It's funny, I've seen some Christians walking around with like these Burger King crowns, but the, uh, the laurel wreath is really the kind of crown that's talked about for most, most believers. But anyway, Paul speaks about athletics in so many places. And one of those places is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll draw your attention there for a moment. He talks, he uses athletics 
to use to make an example again of discipleship. So it's chapter 9, starting at verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. But I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The old King James, he says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. Some of us read it wrong. I buffet my body. But that was. But when he (laughs) speaks, some of us. But he speaks of being disciplined and not being disqualified. That actually is what's happening in 2 Timothy also. He says, don't be disqualified. Competing according to the rules means that a disciplined athlete doesn't cheat. I mean, we think of Lance Armstrong, seven Tour de France, Tour de France wins, even after testicular cancer was so aggressive. But sadly, he had been doping. He took all those wins away. We, we, we know sports have rules. There are lines we can't step on or step over. There are time restrictions. There are limits to what we can do with our hands or other body parts. You don't trip opponents. You don't doctor equipment. The list goes on. We are to compete based on our skill and our training. In other words, there's no shortcuts. And Paul views discipleship in this way. It has focus. It has discipline. It has dedication. So he uses those examples of a soldier and an athlete. There's yet one more metaphor that Paul uses in this section. It's that of a farmer. He says, be like a farmer. In verse 6, Paul points out that a hardworking farmer should be the first to enjoy the crops. In other words, Paul is saying that part of discipleship is reaping the rewards of the discipline that you put in. Farmers are patient, hardworking, must have faith that there will be a return for their investment. The Lord wants us to know that discipleship is not all about doing. It's also about receiving. The principle is that we reap what we sow. This principle, of course, runs throughout Scripture. Paul applied it to money. If we sow generously, we reap generously. Many of you have experienced that in your own life. You don't be stingy with giving God your money or your time or energy. He will give back in a way that you didn't even anticipate. But it's hard for some people to grasp that. So they say, well, I can only give a little bit. And so what you get back is a little bit. What is the reward for the work of discipleship? Paul, he doesn't say it directly, but he hints at it. After years of ministry, I actually think I see where he's going. The reward for being a reliable disciple is having more disciples. One New Testament writer says it this way, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The greatest reward for faithful ministry is not money, it's not property, it's not popularity, it's not even status in the eyes of the world. The greatest reward is that there are people who are so touched by your ministry, by your patient listening, by your prayers, by you pouring your life into them, that they want to do the same thing for others. That's how the kingdom of God multiplies. We went to plant a church back in 1989 called New Community. There's a picture up here. After five and a half years, we moved to D.C., The church, unfortunately, didn't continue that long after we left. It's a long story, but 
But um, through social media, many of us found each other, and the values we developed at New Community are still part of several of us. You know, I mentioned this at the first service, and uh, our elder Mark Jensen, the chair of the board, mentioned the same thing. He had been a church planter, and then he started listing off all the names of people that had been part of that church who are, of course, still walking in the way. Some of them are here, and some have moved to other places. The ideals of New Community are still part of us. One of our beloved members died in 2012. She was a single woman and uh, one of four sisters. And one of her sisters called, found my number among her things and called me to inform me, but also to ask me if I'd officiate at the funeral. So I went uh, went over to Brooklyn and saw a bunch of new community people there, all striving to live as faithful disciples of the Lord and being advocates for multicultural ministry because these were the values we had way back in 1989. And even though the church no longer exists as a single entity, the values of new community have been multiplied. Paul says here in verse 9 that even though he's chained, the word of God is not chained. God's word will keep moving out in power. Paul says that he's willing to endure hardship for the sake of God's people. He knows that the reward for being a faithful disciple is witnessing the development of more disciples. Timothy, and many others, they were Paul's legacy. He didn't leave behind buildings or bank accounts. What did Paul have to show for his hard work and imprisonment? People. People who followed Jesus. Because Paul showed them the way. So my question, are you showing others the way? Are you following as well as leading? I don't know what you'll remember about my ministry when I'm gone, but I hope that you will remember that the Sanctuary Covenant Church is in the business of making and deepening disciples of Jesus. And if we can do that, even reasonably well, we'll see individuals, families, and even a neighborhood become more loving, more just, more reflective of who God is. This is how God operates, by making disciples who can make some more disciples. Sisters and brothers, we're about to come to the Lord's table. And I want to take us there by reminding us of what happens at the end of this section. Paul then, he quotes a poem in essence. You can see the rhythmic quality of it there. He says, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a hymn that affirms the Lord's promise that he'll be on our side as we follow him. We sing that all the time, words like that, about how much we want to be faithful, how devoted we want to be, how much we want to live for the Lord, how much he's our only one. I encourage you right now to take some time to reflect on where you are in discipleship. Are you in a discipleship chain? Can you relate to those metaphors of soldier, athlete, and farmer? I think the humblest response we can have to the word of God is to take this communion meal because we're saying, Lord, I want to be all that you say I am but I need your help to do it. So when you take the bread 
And when you drink the cup, you're saying in a very graphic and real way, I depend on you. I need you. I need the nourishment that comes from you. I need this. Yes, it's a little bit of bread. It's a little bit of juice. But it's what it represents that's so powerful and meaningful. To be a disciple, to follow Jesus so we can make some more disciples. Lord, I give you thanks today for your word. I give you thanks for this community of faith. Lord, I thank you for the sanctuary and how we've been growing together these few years. I thank you, Lord God, that we have come to believe that you are real and that you want to change hearts, our own hearts, as well as those of people around us in our community, on our block, at our jobs. Lord, we want to let our lights shine so much that people would see our good works and glorify you. They would want to be followers of Jesus as well. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Empower us, Holy Spirit, so we can be your witnesses as we ought to be living for you. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite Pastor.